You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast that addresses the dark feminine. My name's Breach Burke, I'm your host, and this week in our continuing series on the Astamatrikas, we are going to talk about Indrani, who's also known as Aindri, uh, and also as um, Shaki, um, S-H-A-C-H-I, uh, which sounds like Shakti, and, and there's a good reason for that. And also she's known as Mahendri, um, as well as a few other names. Now, uh, Indrani is the queen of the gods, okay? She, her husband is Indra, and Indra is considered to be the uh, Devaraja, the, the king of the gods. So she is the Devarani. She is the queen of the gods. And we want to, um, when, it comes to the, the, uh, when it comes to the king and queen of the gods, um, there's an iconography here that we're going to actually see mirrored all across the world. Um, Indrani is probably out of the Matrikas, probably one of the most approachable. Okay, she's um, she's more like she she has more of a benevolent aspect that can turn malevolent or malignant um, under the right circumstances. Uh, and we'll we'll see that there's some comparisons here to some other deities. Um, most notably, I can think of um, the goddess Hera or or Juno in Greek Roman iconography. And we are also going to see similarities between her and goddesses like Maeve or Morrigan in the in the Celtic. Um, now, okay, so strictly speaking, when we talk about the the Matrikas, we're talking about the Shaktis. Sometimes they are the Shaktis of male deities, okay, of male devas. And in this case, she is the Shakti of Indra, uh, the king of the gods. So she, in this case, you know, in some cases, the um, the wife is independent. Now, by the way, though, Indrani is very, very independent in spite of the fact that she is the spouse of, um, uh, of Indra. So, you know, she, she still definitely has that independence factor that you see in the Matrikas and in the Mahavidyas. The, um, the difference with her is that, first of all, she's, is, she's widely considered in a lot of ways to be one of the first Shakti, okay? One of the first um, uh, female deities to assume that role of being the Shakti of, of her spouse. Um, and when it comes to Indra, this actually becomes something that's that's quite complicated. Um, she is, okay, so like the Matrikas, she, she does appear in the in the Chandipat. She is one of the deities who uh, does battle, um, you know, with, with Durga. Um, but she's more, she's better known, <clears throat> excuse me, for her role as, you know, in her role as queen of the gods, we see in Indra a god who, um, he's actually quite a flawed god. When we think about, um, you know, when we think about gods and, and the behavior of gods, okay, um, he's, he tends to be somebody who is very, um, you know, he's, he's, he's a womanizer, okay, he, he doesn't, he's not faithful to his wife. And he tends to get uh, very arrogant and tends to get a big ego about certain things, at least according to certain stories in the Vedas. So it's, you know, so so he has, so he's, he's he in a in sense is a, even though he's king of the gods, and he is considered to be very brave, and it's because he puts his thunderbolt in Vitra, um, who is, uh, 
withholding all of the world's oceans, and we're going to see a similarity there to another myth, but he withholds all of the world's oceans, and then Indra drops his thunderbolt on him, and then he, you know, um, kills him and lets loose the waters of the earth. And then, of course, you know, this makes him a, a sort of a great hero who saved the world by returning all the waters, just as Shiva was a great hero for drinking the poisons that were put into the waters. Um, he's very, um, you know, he has this this sort of um, heroic, you know, you know, noble leader kind of characteristic, you know, army general kind of characteristic. Um, but Indra, of course, um, tends to get a, a big head about that. So let's see. So let's talk about Indrani. Now, the reason Indra marries Indrani is because she is one of the most beautiful goddesses. I mean, her she's voluptuous. She's described as voluptuous, and he has great sexual desire for her. She is, in fact, the um, you know as we talked about the different matrikas and the planets that they rule. She is the ruler of Shukra or Venus. Okay, and that and that makes a lot of sense. Um, um, and it's interesting, too, to think about if we think if we can do some comparisons with Roman myth, Venus is actually not only, you know, we, we tend to think of her as the goddess of love. The, the word actually uenos um, in U-E-N-U-S uh, in um, a Latin actually means grace. OK, so, uh, you know, so I think, um, you know, Venus and Aphrodite, we tend to kind of equate the two or make them equal. And in some myths, they are. But they, you know, there's also, um, in, in the Roman, she, there's a little bit of a difference. She's also considered to be the mother of the Roman people. So in that sense, we kind of see like an Indrani quality there in the sense of, you know, this this beautiful, voluptuous woman who is also sort of acts as the, um, the queen or, you know, as a mother figure perhaps um, to other gods in that respect. Um, now, let's see. Now, how is she described? Let's talk about her iconography first. Okay, um, it shows her with golden skin, a thousand eyes, six arms, four hands, bearing a sacred thread, uh, a thunderbolt, a metal pot, and a libation vessel, um, making the Varada and Abaya mudras. Um, I often wonder if uh, that's if there's some kind of an error there, because if she has six arms, surely then she has 12 hands and not four. But, um, but anyway, that's the, that's the way it's sort of described. Um, here, at least in the translation, let me just see if I translated right, because that just looks, now that I'm reading it, that looks really weird. Um, okay. It says, Indani, um, holds a thunderbolt, whetstone, and mace in three of her four hands, her and the elephant is her vahana, or vehicle. Okay, and the elephant, of course, is associated with royalty, so that makes sense. She makes the fearlessness and boon-giving gestures, or mudras. Um, now, in this one, she has three eyes, a ruddy complexion, and lives in the Kapa Rishka tree. Um, and it says she has a thousand eyes, um, and let's see what else I'm just trying to see, uh, golden skinned, a thousand eyes, and that she should have six arms with four hands bearing the sacred thread. Okay. So I think what it's implying is that not that she only has four hands, but that those four hands actually, um, you know, uh, that she, that, you know, that, that in four of those hands, she carries those weapons. So I think that's what we're, what we're saying here. Now, um, now, okay, so there's really, again, like I always like to focus on certain aspects of these deities when I talk about them. And for Indrani, there's kind of three things that I want to focus on in particular. Okay, first of all is, of course, we're going to talk about her as queen and wife of Indra and, and what that means. And, there's, and the absolute direct comparisons you can almost make to Zeus and Hera in a lot of ways. Um, maybe not, maybe not entirely when I'm thinking about it, when I just think about, um, how Hera acts out her jealousies and so forth. 
Um, it's a little bit different with uh, Indrani, but um, but we, we see this this thing now. The other the other thing we want to look at when we um, look at her, and, and I should also mention by the way, as we mentioned, all the Matrikas have a vice. Her vice is jealousy. Okay, um, and that ties very much into her role as Indra's spouse. Now the other uh, interesting aspect of Indrani is that she's the daughter of a demon, a demon called uh, Pulaman. She, so she is the daughter of an Ashura, which is, you know, which is rather interesting. Um, so we're going to talk about her um, sort of demonic origin, if you will, and the way that that is interpreted and plays out. Um, and also I'd like to make a little bit of a comparison between her and some of the Celtic deities, because as we see, the myth of Indra also has its parallels in Celtic mythology, and the role of Indrani... Uh, tends to be very much like some of the um, the darker goddesses of the Celtic pantheon, like Maeve or like the Morrigan. So, and we and Maeve, by the way, who is a queen, okay, Queen Maeve, who is you know um, kind of represents this, you know, the um, the sovereignty of nature and the earth, and and is is generally considered to be kind of the the quote unquote spouse of the sovereign. So, in that in that respect, we have this kind of um, relationship here that we could probably draw. And, and help us to understand like what what kind of a role um, what kind of a feminine role she plays that seems to be echoed when you see something like that that's echoed throughout various traditions there's generally something archetypal about it okay there's something about it that is um, you know common to um, different you know you know something that might be I, I hate I, I always hesitate to use the word universal because there's people who jump on me for using that word but um, there's definitely the sense that, um, you know, there's there, there's something, you know, there, there there's more than meets the eye here when you see this kind of same mythical theme being played out in different cultures. Okay, so we've, we've described uh, Indrani, and um, her name actually, um, Indrani or Mahendri, uh, translates as power of might. And she's also known as um, Shaki. Now... The thing about um, that, and like I said, that seems very close to Shaki, and one of the things that um, I have in my notes here, um, let's see if I can find it down here. Yeah, here's one where it says that um, Shaki is derived from the verb shock or, uh, or shock, S-H-A-K uh, or S-H-A-C-H. In the Vedas, it is said that Shakti or Shachi, Shakti, Sashaki, sorry, it's like when I see the CH, I want to say Sachi, Shachi, but it's, it's Shaki, uh, is something a male god possesses, not female, as the goddess itself is Shakti. Now, that's interesting because, by the way, just, just a side note for those of you who are interested in Carl Jung and Jung's theory on the Anima Anonymous. Um, Jung is frequently misinterpreted as saying that men have a soul, they have an Anima. And that women have an animus, which is not a soul. So he makes it sound to people, they say, oh, see how sexist he is. He says that women are soulless. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying what this says right here. The woman herself is the shaki or the shakti. She is the soul. The man has to, um, you know, the, the man has to possess it as kind of something, you know, some part of himself. But um, but for the woman, it's sort of, you know, naturally part of her being because, you know, it, being born into biologically female, she already contains the feminine. The feminine does not uh, appear through reflection as almost like a, an archetypal. I, 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 I want to call it an other. I mean, technically, 
the anima is part of, of the biological male. It's not separate. But, um, but it can often be perceived as, um, you know, it, it's something that a man uh, reflects on, you know, when man, you know, is, is supposedly, okay, let's just say a cis, you know, cisgender heterosexual man falls in love with a woman, what he's generally seeing is the image of his own soul. For a woman, she already has that, she already is the image, as, as it were, um, but what she possesses as an opposite is the animus, and um, when Jung says things like, oh, it tends to make her opinionated and say stupid things and blah, 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 people get annoyed about that too, but what he's really pointing out is the way in which, um, the way that we um, glorify thought and rationalization sometimes is actually quite stupid. So, um you know, when we become very judgy and opinionated, uh, that's, that's the male side, uh, poking through. So, um, so yeah, so, so let, you know, this, so when, when Jung talks about that, he's talking about this kind of thing, you know, the, the female already embodies the, in this case, the Shakti or the energy, um, the man sort of possesses it almost as, you know, I mean, it's not really separate, but you can almost think of it as a separate force. Okay. So, here it also says, in earlier Vedic accounts, Shaki was depicted as a female shadow of Indra. Okay, <laughs> Interesting that she's Indra's shadow, not merely her Shakti. She was, for a short while, considered to be an evil spirit. She was said to be the daughter of a demon. Hence, she is sometimes referred to as the goddess of wrath. Now, it's interesting that she's associated with wrath, but her vice is jealousy. Although jealousy and wrath, as you will see, go together. Then in later Hindu interpretations, she began personifying jealousy and evil intent, but after a few years, she became an important and highly worshipped astral spirit and is worshipped in South India until this day. And according to the Rig Veda, Shaki is considered a most fortunate female for Indra, uh, for Indra granted her immortality. Uh, it is said that he chose her over all the other goddesses because of her magnetic attractions. Now, if she's a goddess, why wouldn't she be immortal? Well, because she's the daughter of a demon. Demons are mortal. They die. Okay? So... Um, so this is why, you know, they, they do not drink of the amrita, or the, the, the nectar of immortality. So, um, so therefore, she has to be given this by her husband because it doesn't, you know, being the, the um, daughter of an ashura, she doesn't naturally have it. Okay, so it's interesting. Okay, so if I go back, there's... Um, so if we look at the stories of Indra and Indrani, now there's apparently many of them throughout... Um, the Rig Veda. Um, and in they, they says in the Rig Veda, she's described to be very beautiful. One of the hymns pictures her as jealous of rivals. And in the same hymn, Shaki also asks the God to rid her of her rivals. Okay. So, um, Indra, he has the most beautiful wife in the world and he goes out and he's cheating on her left and right. Okay. And in fact, it is said, um, that, um, in the story of Pulaman, um, what happens is that, um, Indrani, Shiva, I'm sorry, now I'm thinking Shiva. Indra is in love with um, Shaki, who then becomes Indrani because she's his wife. Um, but he is so anxious to have her that he actually, and she's, and she's, of course, as intoxicated with him. So they consummate the marriage. They have sex before they actually get married, which angers Pulaman because the father does not like this uh, womanizing kind of son-in-law that he's going to have. And a struggle ensues, and actually Indra ends up killing Pulaman, okay? Now, this is kind of an interesting story because, you know, okay, it's interesting. Her father's a demon, okay? But the, but the demonic father is the one who wants you to um, follow the right rules of convention and tradition and, and not to bypass that. 
And in fact, Indra killing him is probably quite unfair in that context, if you're looking at it in that ethical context. You would expect the god to be ethical, not the demon. And here, thus, thus we look at the um, rather complicated nature of demons as well as gods in uh, Hindu mythology. Okay. Now, when I, when I look at the story of Indrani with uh, Indra and his womanizing tendencies, um, and also, you, we can compare this to the story of Zeus and Hera. Now, Indra is a storm god, okay, and thus Indrani is a storm goddess. They both possess the thunderbolt. Now, I talked at length in the last podcast about the symbolism of the thunderbolt with Lug driving his thunderbolt into the eye of Balor. A myth, by the way, that we can compare to the myth of um, uh, Indra, um, you know, dropping his, his thunderbolt on Vitra, okay? And, uh, you know, releasing the world's oceans. Because what, what does Vitra do? When he withholds all the water, that's like almost a sign of famine, like drought, okay? And similarly, Balor in the Celtic myth, um, Balor is, um, when he opens his great eye, I mean, he burns everything up. So again, it's the same idea that things are dry, that there's no water. And it's the thunderbolt that brings the water, okay? So it's a very similar theme in both myths. Um, you know, he's, uh, and as I mentioned, storm gods are very common. Um, Baal was a storm god in the Canaanite. Um, Yahweh is considered to be a storm god uh, among the Hebrews. And remember, Yahweh was one of multiple gods. Um, but he sort of became the, um, you know, the, the identifying god of the, of the Hebrews or the Jews at that time. Um, it's only in much later that you have the idea of Yahweh as a god for everybody. Initially, he was a, the national god, you might say, of, of Israel, uh, once it became Israel. And so it's, so it's interesting, um, you have this, this connection here, you have this thunderbolt connection. So, you know, initially you see Yahweh as a storm god, you see Baal as a storm god, you see Lug as a storm god, and again, there's the idea of the thunderbolt, um, particularly... Um, releasing from famine and drought, okay? It's uh, making the earth sort of uh, fruitful again and, you know, having that fire-water balance again as, as it's needed. Um, so Indrani, you know, with her thunderbolt, uh, this kind of makes her this, you know, and, and on, sitting on an elephant, definitely there's the idea of sovereignty and definitely there's this idea about the storm god. Now, if we think about Zeus and Hera, okay, so how did Zeus and Hera get together? Okay, they're, now, they were brother and sister, okay? So that's a little bit, um, well, that's, that's also the tricky situation of the, of the Greek gods, is that, um, you know, it, you know there's, there's certain places where, um, um, actually, even in some of my own writings, my own fictional writings, well, yeah, I'll talk about incestuous relationships where people go, oh, well, that's, that's horrible, how can you write about that? Well, because usually one of the characters is a deity, and deities don't care about that. You know, incest is a, is a human concern for very, for very good biological reasons, okay? I think most of us are pretty grossed out by the idea of incest. But it's, it's very common among the Greek gods, um, you know, because they're forces. It doesn't matter. They're, um, they're, they're unifying for a particular purpose, you know, or, they're, you know, whatever that appears to be. But the, but the, the interaction between them represents um, some interaction in some either broader psychological or natural sense, um, you know, plus whatever else it might mean. So uh, Zeus and Hera, okay, so what happens is um, Hera basically refuses Zeus. She rejects him, but um, he 
disguises himself as like a little poor bedraggled bird and she feels sorry for it and she takes it to her breast. And then he immediately turns into Zeus and ravishes her. So once again, there's the idea of he's had sex with her before he's married her. Now, uh, Hera is definitely a goddess who is concerned with, um, I mean, part of her role in Greek myth is, you know, she has to do with, you know, women's proper role in society and marriage and family and things like that, you know, of maintaining that, uh, the wifely duty side, you know, not, not the, you know, um, wayward lover side, but the wifely duty side. So uh, she, of course, is horrified and embarrassed. So she marries him immediately, you know, in the same way that when you have younger people who get back pregnant and they go, oh, well, she's going to marry the father, so it's okay. And, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot wrong with that. But um, that is kind of a common idea in our culture that, you know, as long as the two of them are married at some point, then it's fine. Of course, people frown on it, you know, and, and again, in, in some cultures when the child comes before the marriage or, or whatever. But, you know, you can, you can take or leave that depending on how how conservative your views are on such things. But, um, but yeah, if we want to talk about tradition, tradition, traditional views, and, you know, versus um, these um, flouting of tradition, I guess if you could say. So both Zeus does, Zeus does this, and so does Indra. And what's interesting is they both cheat on their wives like crazy, like that, that, um, it's, um, there was, I remember in uh, Mark Morford's book on mythology, he had talked about, Zeus and Hera's relationship is embodying, embodying sort of, um, you know, the, the problems with enforced chastity and sort of the desiring what is forbidden. So once you're married, I mean, in theory, um, you're mono, you know, you, you know, you're faithful to your spouse, okay? Um, but they never were. Um, so the woman always ends up representing, um, you know, the wife and, and the duties of the wife, whereas the husband... Um, you know, it's the idea of the, the, the philandering husband. And, you know, and, and frequently what's happened in society is that um, when you have relationships like that that are outside some kind of, um, we'll say, uh, approved kind of um, relation or bond, uh, the woman is often treated as, um, you know, she's referred to as a whore or a slut or, you know, she's, she's somehow looked upon or looked down on as being somehow, you know, like you filthy whore, you know, just spreading your legs for somebody, you know, that kind of a thing. Where's the man? Um, and by the way, I've seen this not, you know, in, in the lives of people around me, um, you know, not necessarily people related to me, but, you know, people who have been neighbors or, you know, at different times in my life, where the woman is sent away because, oh, you know, that, that's just shameful and disgraceful, especially if they get pregnant. Oh, God, you know? you know, you're, you're just, you're just a, you're just a disgrace to your family. Whereas him, it's like, good job, son. You know, you proved how fertile you are. So there, there's always been this kind of idea that, you know, it's okay for men to go out and sow their oats because, you know, that's kind of what they got to do. But women, no, women, you know, you can't do it that way. Um, and that just basically, I'm just going to say it flat out as a load of bullshit, but that's kind of, um, but that, that has been the traditional attitude. And this is why, you know, um, so it's interesting that Indra chooses for himself a wife. She's almost like the celebrity wife, okay? You know, like you'll see, like, you know, um, movie stars or, or musicians or different people who are very famous will always have, might have a spouse who is just, like, has to be very glamorous and very beautiful. So in a way, uh, uh, Shaki or Indrani is, becomes is sort of the celebrity spouse, only she's... Um, you know, <laughs> I, I hate to, I, I, I've used the phrase, I use it in Maeve, um, of accessory spouse. You know, the, 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 I, there's a, there was a Dilbert cartoon where they talk about, um, 
where Dilbert's sitting in the vice president's office and, um, you know, of his, of his company and points to a picture of his wife and he says, your wife is very pretty. And then he responds with, thank you very much. I selected her because she matches my furniture. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I know that sounds really terrible and probably is grossly unfair because probably, you know, these marriages are just fine. But you do see examples of where it's like, okay, I've got the wife for, you know, for their looks or for, you know, just to be able to count around and go, look what I have, look how great I am that I can score this, you know? And then, um, you know, you know, but, but what the relationship is like otherwise, I mean, I, I mean, I, I honestly couldn't say, but, you know, but you also hear of these, these same celebrities who have these, these, these drop dead gorgeous wives, you know, out sleeping with other women all the time. So, you know, I, I'm not, uh, you know, so to me, it's kind of the similar kind of dynamic. And a lot of it comes from power. When you have that kind of acclaim or influence, then you have power, whether it be political power or any other kind, you know? Um, and so the wife, she tends to be, it's like, yes, you have to have a wife whose, whose beauty and desirability matches, you know, your, um, you know, your, your stature, okay? Uh, can't just be some ordinary person, right? So, um, so anyway, uh, we have this in Andrani, and, and just like that with Hera, um, she is just, Hera absolutely hates her husband's philandering, but the way she tends to deal, she tends to deal with it by getting revenge on, on her rivals. And sometimes, to be fair, these poor women, um, they, they don't know what's going on. Zeus appears as like a swan, or it's a shower of gold, or something else, and they're just like, oh, what's this thing going on? And they get the sense that a god's involved, but it's not like they really have that much of a choice. If they try to run away, they're probably going to be caught. Um, but Hera takes it out on them anyway. And similarly, we see here with Indrani that she, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Indrani will say, um, you know, I, I would like to, you know, she, she basically asks her to, you know, the god to remove all of her rivals, okay? So, you know, I don't know that she's, she's plotting any kind of vengeance against them particularly, but her vice is jealousy, and that is also the vice of Hera. Hera is insanely, insanely jealous. Now, this is going to lead me to a slight digression about the Aeneid. I actually realized I was starting to talk about this in the last podcast, and I was listening going, I never finished that thought, did I? Well, we'll finish it here. Okay, the Aeneid. Um, the Aeneid, there was an article written, um, I want to say it was back in the 90s, uh, but it was interesting. It was called The Wrath of Juno. Okay, now Juno, remember, is the same as, you know, is the Roman name for the goddess we think of as Hera. And, you know, so the queen of the gods, the wrath. So here we have, again, because we, we've seen the idea of wrath, even though the vice of Indrani is jealousy, we see her associated with wrath. So um, now when we talk about the wrath of Hera, the entire Aeneid, the whole book, okay, by Virgil, um, whatever else it represents as a kind of Roman epic or kiss up to Emperor Augustus or whatever else you might think of it, Okay, and I think what I was going to say about it in the last one was that we were talking about adolescence and war. The Aeneid is the first book to treat war as as something terrible. You know that that it represents innocent lives lost, not um, not some kind of wonderful glorifying thing. You know, you have these long soliloquies. You know, the the one boy who's killed by um, Turnus and his um, his armies, and you know they 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 butcher the boys basically and and you know hang their heads up as off you know as as warnings. And the mother was saying, oh, you know, who's going to take care of me now in my old age? My son, who I'm relied on for everything. Like, there's this long thing about. 
and 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 really the the thing behind that was that Rome had been in civil war for so long um that now you had a point where um you know that Augustus was in was emperor okay now we now we have the pax romana we have a peace so how wonderful it is to have peace and not have war so that's another theme behind Virgil's Aeneid okay and Aeneas himself is a bit of a softy being the son of Venus as a matter of fact um, now, the connection between Aeneas, Aeneas is supposed to be, um, just as, you know, the Greeks were considered to be the winners of the Trojan War, or the Achaeans is really the correct term used, but the Greeks um, in, in the Trojan War were considered to be the winners of that conflict, and Troy was destroyed. Um, Aeneas is considered to be sort of like the glorious hero of Troy, who now has to do with the founding of Rome. I mean, Romans can't attribute their founder to somebody from Greece because they conquered the Greeks, so that, that's not going to work. So they go back to this, this civilization of Troy and this epic battle, and they say, oh, Aeneas, yes, he's, he was the son of Venus and, um, you know, Venus and Anchises. Um, he certainly is the, um, you know, that is, that is his lineage. He has a human father, and, and you know, this, that's, that's the one time that, you know, Zeus managed to make Aphrodite, or if you like, Jupiter managed to make Venus um, fall in love with a mortal, um, because he was just sick of her doing that to all of the gods. <clears throat> so... Um, okay, so, so what happens in the Aeneid is now what we, the, the Aeneid is described in this one article as the wrath of Juno. And it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? What it means is that the way the whole epic starts is basically that, um, the goddess Juno is, um, she hates Aeneas because she hates Troy. Okay. And, and throughout Homer's Iliad, um, Hera and, and Athena were continually plotting against Troy they, she, she wanted Troy to lose, like in the word, to the point that she was willing to disobey her husband and do all kinds of weird stuff, because she wanted, she wanted Troy to lose so badly. Now, why does, why does Hera hate Troy so much? You know, because Aeneas is kind of a good, pious, God-fearing boy. You know, uh, she's not her and Venus or or Aphrodite, depending on which tradition. They're not, they're not particularly enemies. Um, maybe, maybe to some degree there's, there's some drama, but they're not, they're not particularly enemies. So then the question becomes, okay, um, so what does Hera have against Troy? Well, (laughs) um, this is one of those episodes in Greek mythology, you know, there's a lot of talk about, um, homosexual relationships in Greek mythology. And here's one example, because, um, Tross, who is the, the founder of Troy, the progenitor of Troy, um, has uh, one of his, he has, uh, he has, he has uh, another son. He has um, uh, Ilios, his one son, which is to, which is where the name Ilium, which is the actual other name for Troy, where that comes from, is uh, from Ilios. And he also has a son, uh, Ganymede, okay? Ganymede is supposed to be an absolutely beautiful young man. So beautiful that the god Zeus, or Jupiter, if you like, in that tradition, falls in love with him. And it c- comes down as an eagle and sweeps him away to become, you know, to be his lover, basically, and to be the cupbearer for the gods. So he's taken up to Mount Olympus, and in exchange, um, he gives Tross some, I think it's some magical horses or something, you know, something is kind of like a, um, a reparation for taking his son away. Um, well, Hera, therefore, is, you know, this, this son of Troy, who's coming, having an affair with her husband, um, you know, doesn't matter whether you're talking male or female, you know, partners, uh, Hera is not pleased, and she has just vowed to destroy, even though Tross has nothing to do with this. The fact that Ganymede is a son of Troy, there's a jealousy there. Okay, so jealousy becomes the source of the war. 
and jealousy becomes her wrath. Because Aeneas, as representing somebody who survived the war and is now supposed to found a city over in Italy, um, she is determined to do everything she can to stop him. And in that sense, she has almost the role of a trickster. She acts like a um, like the Satan figure in the Job story. You know, I'm, I'm here to test you and to put obstacles in your path. Because in the end, she just kind of says, okay, you know, Zeus tells her, or Jupiter tells her, or um, Jupiter, Jove, whichever name he goes by there, so basically tells her to knock off what she's been doing to Aeneas. And she's like, okay, but um, my only thing is, I don't want them to speak the Trojan language. I want them to speak the language of Latium, which happens to be Latin. That's where Latin comes from. So um, he says, fine, fine, that's that's good. And so she lays off and... Although in the, the, the Aeneid does not end. Aeneid ends with um, Aeneas uh, killing Turnus because he sees him wearing the belt of his friend who he had killed, you know, very much mirroring the Achilles and Patroclus story in the Iliad. Um, and when Turnus is begging for mercy, Aeneas just does, doesn't care. He does him in. So, um, you know, it, interesting because Aeneas is usually considered to be very compassionate and merciful, but he's not with Turnus. So, um, you know, the, the, the strong emotions there. So, uh, so the Aeneid, yeah, a lot of people think of the Aeneid as kind of like the wrath of Juno. She's going to pursue him. She tries to derail him into a relationship with uh, Queen, uh, Queen Dido of, um, of Carthage. Um, you know, she's trying everything she can to sort of keep him from fulfilling his destiny, even though in Greek mythology, you cannot overrule fate. The gods can't overrun or overrule fate. Whatever the fate is, whatever that, whatever that person's fate is, that's their fate. So if this is his fate, she can't, she knows ultimately she can't stop it, but she's got to give him a hell of a time. So in that sense, she acts as the quote-unquote Satan figure in there. And here, now let's go back to um, Shaki or uh, Indrani. And here she is, the, the jealous spouse of the king of the gods. Very similar story. Um, and she has a demonic origin. How interesting, right? But as, we've, as I've often said, I say it in my book, Death and the Maiden, and it's also, I'm, I'm certainly not the first or the last person to mention this, the idea of demonic um, is something, in terms of, a, of an evil force, okay, it was something that was developed much later in Western culture. The idea of a daemon, a daemon is more like a, an intermediary spirit that kind of um, brings you messages from the gods, as it were. I mean, you hear Socrates has a daemon, okay, Plato talks about the daemon. And they're not talking about some evil spirit. They're talking about, you know, some some intermediary, like I said, some intermediary being. We might think of them as angelic beings, okay, in, in Western parlance, that mediates between you and the gods. And, um, you know, so that's that's the idea of the daemon. And, and in Hindu mythology, the Ashura, who we, which we translate as demon, um, as we can see, Ashuras are not necessarily evil. They can They can have good spiritual practices. They can follow what we think of as tradition and ethics, as we see with Pulaman here, who is angry that he has this son-in-law who is dishonoring his, um, this is future son-in-law who's dishonoring his daughter before they're even married, okay? So, you know, <clears throat> what we think of, so it's not, it's not just as cut and dried as demons are evil and gods are good. I mean, and we see in Indra's behavior. Um, but it makes me think, okay, so Indra, Indrani is the, is the Shakti of Indra, which means she's his sort of vital force, his vital essence. Then to some degree, on another level, she also um, is part of this passion or the, these impulses in him. Because remember, the, the Shakti is like the fire that runs through you. It's your consciousness. It's, 
it's what it's your energetic force you know this is what makes you um I don't want to say it makes you tick, but it's kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's basically your life force. So if she is, is the representation of, of Indra's Shakti, then, um, I would say that, uh, you know, that, that kind of demonic quality that she has by virtue of her background, um, may be to a certain degree part of, you know, sort of part of Indra's background as well, if that makes any sense. You know, because because he is taken up by desire. Desire is something that is, um, you know, uh, that that's a big problem. The, the desire for you know greed and the desire for power is a big problem that the Asuras tend to have. And uh, the Asuras tend to represent humans in this way. That's why I think there's an encouragement to have an Ishta Devata to behave like a, a particular Deva that you um, that you honor or Devi, um, and not to not to you know. Be more like your, you know, ashurdic nature, as it were. Um, which again sounds—I don't know—just sounds very Platonic to me too. Plato definitely has that idea when he talks about one's Titanic versus Dionysiac nature. Because for him, Dionysus, Dionysus was more like a savior figure, and was considered to be, yeah, at least in Orphic mythology, the successor to Zeus. Uh, so the Titans got jealous and lured the baby Dionysus and ripped him apart and cooked and ate him. Um, but then his heart was rescued and by Athena, and they were able to, to, to rebuild him as you were. There's your first resurrection, right? Um, this is where a lot of the Jesus story comes from. Uh, and so Dionysus is resurrected, and Zeus, in his anger at the Titans, um, reduces them to ash, and out of the ashes, mortals rise. Okay? Now, Plato does tell this story. And, um, you know, so the idea is the human beings have this quote-unquote titanic nature that is more wicked um, and, and greedy and jealous and so forth, whereas they, but they also have a divine spark from having eaten Dionysus, okay? And there, there also we have the idea of Eucharist, the idea of eating the body, right? So, um, and again, this is not exclusive to that, but there is a pretty, if you follow the, the, the sort of paper trail there, there is somewhat um, of a path from Dionysus or Bacchus worship to um, the kinds of mythologies associated with Jesus. So, um, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could you could find about 25 other examples. But anyway, um, I don't want to digress onto that point. I'm just simply pointing out the fact that um, we tend to think of Ashuras as having to do with our wicked nature, but they're not necessarily wicked. That's the thing. It's just a matter of when desire um, gets in the way and then they become either wrathful or greedy or hungry for power or, you know, and, and then they do things to, then it becomes all about them. They forget, you know, what, what, you know, the whole that they're part of. And the Davy has to appear to remind her that everything comes from me. Okay. So, okay. So, so this demonic nature, we see it in Indra because Indra is actually a fairly weak king of the gods. He does some great things. And eventually he kind of ends up kind of going into retirement and being something of a, of a more minor deity uh, later on. But Indra, as king of the gods, he is, um, is a story. If you watch Joseph Campbell's Power of Myth, he tells that story, where after he drops the thunderbolt on Vitra, as Campbell says, he says, what a good boy am I. And so he decides he needs a palace that's just so grand. So he gets the, you know, the architect to the gods and he's building him it has to be bigger and bigger and greater and grander for such a wonderful god as he and the architect goes oh god you know so he goes to brahma and um basically they, they they fix it up where um this little blue boy appears um in indra's um 
court. And, um, you know, everybody, of course, is admiring him. And uh, so Indra welcomes him in. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he wants to know, and he basically wants to know why the boy is there. And he says, well, I hear you're building a, a palace um, worthy of, of, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, worthy of an Indra. And he says, and I, yeah, I have to agree. This palace is worthy of, of, you know, you and Indras like you. And he says, well, what do you mean other Indras? You know, you know, what are you talking about? And um, the the, uh, <clears throat> the boy laughs and he says, uh, "Do not ask if you do not want to be hurt." And he says, "Ask, yeah, I, I ask, teach." And so the boy says, um, "You know, Indras before you." He says, "I've seen them come and go." And then an army of ants comes in. He says, "These were former Indras all." He says, "You know, they they rise up, they drop their thunderbolt on Vitra, they say, what a good boy am I,' and they fall right down." So in other words. Indra is also overtaken with desire. Uh, he's overtaken with pride. He gets overtaken with arrogance. And of course, then he says, oh, you know, he has to, you know, so he, he you know, I mean, he undergoes penances and he, he thinks about it and he, um, he at least reflects and he learns. Okay, so that's the thing. But, you know, if, if, if his Shakti has a demonic origin, um, you know, and if the demonic has to do a lot with being, with attachment or maybe desire, then we can see where the relationship there is, but but you know he's but he's not he's not faithful to Queen Indrani, and and she doesn't take it well. Um, so okay, so we've talked a little bit about her as queen, okay, um, of the gods, and her relationship to her husband, and how that is very similar to the relationship of Zeus and Hera or Jupiter and Juno. And uh, so then we want, I wanted to also take a look at her Celtic aspect. I mean, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't phrase it that way. Comparison to the Celtic aspect. Because we have Queen Maeve, who is this, this noble um, Irish queen. Maeve, who is also, um, you know, gets into an argument with her husband and has this jealousy and the whole um, cattle raid of Cooley comes out of, um, you know, whether or not the, the husband or the wife is more important or has more. Like there's, there's a jealousy there too over what the husband has and wanting to possess something. So we see the similarity with Maeve. But Maeve also is about sovereignty. And that is one of Indrani's um, qualities is that she bestows sovereignty and she can take it away too. Um, so all the things, like all of the Matrikas, okay, um, they have they have these kinds of boons or gifts and they also have the power to take them away. You know, she can... You can pray to Indrani for a, a great sex life or a great love life, and she can also F all that up for you. So uh, there's, they, you know, they have, they have the power. It, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin. They have the power to do either one. So they are, um, and, and it's also noted that um, Shaki or um, Indrani is, is generally worshipped with the other Matrikas, not often in her own right. <clears throat> But she appears a lot in the Vedas, and again, in, in terms of this relationship. Now, there is one particular story about her, which I will read, uh, of Nahusa and uh, Indrani. So let me see. I have the text of it here. Um, okay. Yes, this one. Okay. Um, okay. There's no dearth of mythological accounts about Indrani. As the wife of Indra Dev. She forms part of many legends that speak about the various happenings in respect of Indra. She was born to Pulaman and Ashura, who was actually killed by her future husband Indra. 
Indrani is regarded as the first Shakti, the personification of feminine might and originator of the great concept of powerful female consorts, which developed subsequently into Shakti worship. I think there's a little more to it than that, but okay, that's this particular source. The most interesting legend concerning her is perhaps the story of Nahusha. Once Indra had to flee from his kingdom and hid elsewhere on account of his sin of killing a Brahmin, King uh, Nahusha, who seized power and began ruling the heavens, became arrogant, developed a strong desire for possessing the beautiful Indrani, and began making immoral advances towards her. Alone and helpless, she sought refuge from some sages, who advised her of a plan to end Nahusha's tyranny and restore the heavens to her husband. Accordingly, she told a pestering Nahusha to come to her in a special palanquin uh, carried by the great sages. Mad with amorous desire, Nahusha did so immediately. When the short-statured Augustia could not move fast enough carrying the palanquin, um, Nahusha touched the great sage with his feet and goaded him to proceed quickly with the word Sarpa, Sarpa. Uh, Sarpa means serpent, okay? Augustia cursed the impertinent king to become a Sarpa, that is, a serpent himself. Nahusha turned into a snake at once and fell down from heaven. Indra, too, completed his atonement for the sin, got back to his dear wife, and also obtained the kingship of the heavens thanks to the great efforts of Indrani. Now, that's interesting. You have this... Um, uh, um, you have the, again. You have the serpent imagery. You know he has a, he has a great desire for the Shakti for Indrani, so the sage turns him into a serpent, and the serpent in in Indian mythology generally is considered to be positive. Okay, the um, the the Nagaraja, the serpent king. Um, you know the, the king snakes are revered. It's only in the Adam and Eve story that we see this negative idea of the serpent as um, as some kind of symbol of evil. But in this case, probably the serpent is a um, is a representation of his desire, you know, because the serpent can certainly have uh, phallic connotations. Um, it can have, um, you know, snakes also can have tricksterish kind of connotations. You know, the idea of being like, you know, um, you know, shifty like a snake or something like that. You know, like we we have snake is one of those animals that we kind of think of when we think of someone who's being devious. You know. Um, or someone who's actually being kind of a cad. You see, oh, that guy's a snake, you know, or that person's a snake. So there's 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 that aspect of it as well. But he is turned into a serpent. So and really, the man he's still a king, but he's been um, cast down to the ground because he, you know, for um, provoking the sage to move faster, to to meet to you know you know in a hurry to have his desire. So um, you know, and I should indicate that uh, Kalsarpa Yoga. Um, which again has it has to do with the serpent um, is also considered to be a negative thing. Okay, um, we just got out of a Kalsarpa uh, period actually. Not all Vedic astrologers use Kalsarpa in their calculations, but I follow a few that actually do. And yeah, that it's almost like the curse of the serpent, the Kalsarpa. Um, you know, there's you know again like most symbols. Uh, snake is generally positive, and snake may also be related to Shakti and the Kundalini as well. So, um, you know, so we, we have these different, you know, ways of looking at it. And as we, and, and again, it's like it is, this is not a matter of whether something's positive or negative. Everything, everything has inflections possibly of both. Okay. So, um, a lot to think about in terms of the symbolism there. So with that, I think that's all I'm going to say on Indrani. I've probably reached about 40, 45 minutes. Um, and I think, you know, and that's basically, basically what I wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about her demonic aspect, her relationship to her husband, and that comparison to the wives of storm gods who also seem to be kings. And also, 
um, her connection to goddesses of sovereignty. Um, because Maeve, too, by the way, I didn't really say a whole lot about this. Um, Maeve is, um, you know, not only does she have this husband who she's jealous of, but these other aspects of her, um, she, she can be both very sexual, but also very regal at the same time. So, um, and, and she is the one who grants sovereignty. So in that way, um, I tend to think of them as being very similar. When you see these female, um, either queens or deities, or kind of both, they kind of draw the line, you know, fall the line between both, uh, in the Christian writings about them, they tend to be um, either, I don't know, they, they, they tend to make them try to look silly or foolish, or they try to um, make, make them kind of, in, in some ways, there, there's always kind of a debasement um, of, of these particular um, deities. Um, to some degree, um, there's always a sense of showing them as somehow, um, these female deities as somehow at the, at the very least being flawed at the most being monstrous. Um, and we have to recognize that that's, you know, the realities are far more complex than that. So, um, with that, um, that's all I'm going to say on Indrani. Um, now once again, um, I'm going to, I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, if you would like to become a Patreon donor, please visit patreon.com slash Chthonia. Um, to see this and to see information about the other things that I'm working on and other projects, please go to Chthonia.net. You can also get links to all of my podcasts. If um, I, I encourage you to subscribe. Um, but if you, if you don't, you can, you can hear the audio there. YouTube, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, obviously I would ask if you could please subscribe and then press the bell notification so that you know when new podcasts are coming out roughly every two weeks. Um, I'm on social media. Um, Chthonia Podcast is where I'm on at Facebook, two words, and Chthonia Podcast, one word, on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm just Chthonia on YouTube. Um, and... Um, you know, and I also have a site called liminalreiki.com, which I'm talking about because that also is sort of my um, tangential work uh, in helping people working through transitions and difficulties, uh, as I put it, liminal spaces, um, you know, through the use of Reiki, um, oracles, different, different tools that I have to just help people um, find their balance and find their footing. So check that out as well if that interests you. And with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening to another episode, and we'll see you next time.